Thank you, Kathy. It wasn't quite that way, but it sounds good to her. I did tell her. Now, if you can find anything nice to say about me, you know, just feel free to say it. You know, if you if you know anything nice about me, feel free to mention it. You know, as you go along. And I did tell her I thought they drew straws and she lost. You know, Nina introduced me down in Casper one time, and she said I was the only guy that she knew that uh, you could ask him what he thought, and 15 or 20 minutes later he'd still be telling you things you didn't want to know about it. So. <laughs> Uh, I have been famous for doing that a time or two, and, uh, you know, I'll apologize for that too, but uh, I don't know. This has been a good do up till now. I hope I don't screw it up, you know. That's one thing about it. You've had so much good AA up to this point that if I laid an egg here, it wouldn't make any difference. You go home a lot better paid than you came here. So, uh, you know, these people that went before me have guaranteed the success of this conference long before I got here, and I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous long enough to know that one person couldn't screw this thing up, you know. One of us couldn't make it, and one of us couldn't screw it up, so however this goes, you're left with what you're going to get today, and whatever that is, I never know what it's going to be when I get up here to talk, you know. You're just, uh, you're left to uh, whatever, you know, comes out of this devious mind of mine, and Sometimes it's so devious, I don't know what it's going to say, you know. And I've been, uh, you know, I've been uh, at different times accused of uh, saying different things that probably weren't, uh, you know, quite as acceptable as they might should be. And so I've never been, uh, you know, thought of as being one of the spiritual type speakers. I was surprised when they asked me to speak on Sunday morning if they were looking for a spiritual speaker. Or somebody that was a little spiritual, they could call on me because I'm about as littlely spiritual as anybody I know of, you know. And my sponsor told me when I first came in the program and I was really working on my character defects and I was trying to, uh, you know, overcome all my, all my, uh, liabilities. Uh, my sponsor told me one time, he said, Carl, I hope you don't get so spiritually good you're no earthly good. And then he told me, on second thought, he said, I don't believe I'll have to worry about it with you. (laughs) So so, uh, I'll make all my apologies and my amends before I get started this morning. You know, I always think when I get up here to talk, especially on Sunday when, you know, you should be the spiritual speaker and you're not, uh, I like to qualify what I might say is telling you that I was born and raised on a cattle ranch out in western Wyoming and I grew up around the bunkhouse. And when I was three or four years old, the vocabulary that I learned wasn't conducive to what you'd hear in Sunday school because those old cowboys that lived in that bunkhouse were hard-living people and swear words were 95% of their vocabulary. So when I was three, four, five years old, I picked up all those swear words and I was one of those people that could truly say that song, My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys, could be true for me. They, You know, they could have written that for me because that's the way I grew up. Those people were my heroes and... I hung around them, learned how to, you know, do rope tricks and pitch dollars and roll bull durham cigarettes and, you know, tie knots and do all the things that those old cowboys did, and I, I enjoyed it. But part of the vocabulary I acquired as a result of that is what I carry with me today, and, you know, I've tried to uh, clean that up some, and so usually... If I get over-enthusiastic, if I, in my enthusiasm, say some swear words today that might be offensive to somebody, just ignore it as, you know, part of my uh, background and training, you know, I, that I haven't uh, overcome yet. 
I heard Johnny Harris say one time in a meeting that uh, about swear words, he said swear words are a crutch for a for an intellectual cripple. And my wife Audrey straightened that out for me. She said, Carl, if if that were the case, she said you'd need a wheelchair because you'd be a quadriplegic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm not quite as bad now as I used to be, but I'm not quite as good now as I'd like to be. So, so you're going to have to live with uh, what comes from somewhere in between. Uh, God, I uh, I'd like to uh, take care of some of these preliminaries before I get started. I never, like I said, I want to thank the committee. I I. Uh, question their judgment, but I'd like to thank them for inviting me to uh, attend this conference and be uh, the Sunday morning speaker. Uh, I, we got here, you know, and they had a nice basket of fruit uh, waiting for us, and we appreciated that and their hospitality while we've been here. I've known uh, Kathy and Scotty and John and Mike and most of the members of this Cody group for longer than, I can, uh, than I'd like to remember because it makes me believe I'm getting older. And I've always enjoyed the type of, of AA that they have here in Cody because to me it's always been the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's never, you know, been, you know, some version of or Alcoholics Anonymous in conjunction with something else. It's always been the type of Alcoholics Anonymous that I came into this fellowship 26 years ago was when, you know, it was kind of a little different maybe than it is today. So I want to thank them for inviting me, their hospitality, while we've been here and tell them that, uh, you know, it's uh, people like them that uh, do things like that that continue to, uh, you know, reinforce my belief that Alcoholics Anonymous is going to survive in spite of us, you know. And I certainly hope I'm right about that because for what the program's done for me, if it doesn't survive in spite of some of us, there's some people out there that are yet to come that are going to die a miserable existence in ignorance because they don't know the things that we knew or the things that we were able to find out by the old-timers that were coming to Alcoholics Anonymous when I came here, and they so freely passed on to me the things that you know I needed to know to save my own life. So I really appreciate their efforts to uh, you know to continue in that endeavor of keeping Alcoholics Anonymous Alcoholics Anonymous and. Some places I go, it isn't necessarily that way. Like John, I was invited to a place here recently to talk where the speakers were just to uh, fill in as entertainment between the dance and the bingo. You know, anytime you go to a place and they ask the Friday night speakers to share an hour and a half besides the introductions and tell you you've got to quit at 9 o'clock because we have a, simultaneously a dance and a bingo game going on and we also have that same thing going on on Saturday night and that you're only here to fill in, you know, while we're getting ready for that, you know. You don't really feel like, uh, you know, you've uh, participated in the kind of fellowship that I intended to participate in when I came here and I and I was privileged to participate in for many years, you know. So... You've really, like I said, this, this conference has just, it's been a, you know, a real inspiration to me, and I'm certainly glad to have been a part of it. Uh, oh, mercy, let me see. I made some notes, and uh, that's probably dangerous for me because I, I shouldn't uh, really make any notes, but uh, 
I would like to tell you that, uh, you know, as a result of what I've heard here this weekend from the speakers that I've heard, I want to thank them. I certainly, like I said, uh, you know, I, I feel humbled to follow in the footsteps of the people that have talked before me. And they've given me some, you know, they've put some things in my heart that I hope I'm able to express, you know, through my, uh, you know, participation today that'll, you know, the things that are in my heart, I, I hope will, you know, come out on my lips and that, uh, you know, the message that I bring to you today will help you to understand that uh, there's no way to get from where I came from to where I'm at today except by the grace of God. Uh, I, uh, <coughs> I guess I should start out by telling you my name's Carl and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God and with the help of this fellowship, I haven't found it necessary to, to take a drink since January 4th, 1968, and for that I'm very grateful. Uh, I might uh, tell you that I'm one of those uh, pure quill alcoholics, you know. I don't know if you know what that is, but there used to be some pure quill alcoholics. I always resented, uh, you know, drugs. I don't resent uh, drug addicts, but I've always resented drugs because I thought it fouled up a lot of good potential alcoholics, you know. <laughs> I mean, it brought out the worst character defects in perfect alcoholics, you know, and I just, I thought that was such a terrible waste, you know, and it wasn't wasted on me. <laughs> I was strictly a pure quill alcoholic, and I know now that we're a rare and endangered species, uh, you know. Uh, we're, in fact, so rare and endangered that... Uh, me working for the government like I do, I'm privileged to answer some information that probably hasn't been released yet, and I'll just pass it on to you this morning out of the goodness of my heart. <laughs> I understand now that there's a study on foot in the government to try to find a mating pair of pure quill alcoholics so they can introduce them into Yellowstone Park <laughs> in the near future. They're going to do that in an effort to control the wolves. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can remember when the wolves were a terrible threat and they were, you know, exterminated by the, uh, you know, the fish and game uh, people and the, uh, you know, the hunters and trappers that were paid to get rid of them. And, and now they're trying to reintroduce them so they'll balance out the ecosystem. And I figure that a few drunks more or less in Yellowstone Park, and, and I fact is, I know some people that are practicing at becoming mating pairs so they can qualify for that job, you know. So, uh, you know, it's all going to work out. You know, I, that's a lie about the government doing the study. I just hate myself when I lie like that, you know. I mean, I just, you know, it's just a, it's a bad habit that I've gotten. And I'll have, it really is not, uh, you know, that isn't really the truth, but it sounded good when I said it, so... I'm glad I did. <laughs> uh, I want to, uh, you know, there's so many people here that I see today. I, you know, uh, my friend Art over there from Omaha, guys that have, you know, driven a long ways to be here, uh, Howard and uh, Robin from Billings that came down this morning, and, you know, the people that uh, are kind of sitting in the front row there, my friend John that, uh, prompted me yesterday to see say a few evil things, you know, that uh, I hope doesn't come out of my mouth today while I'm uh, talking, because I told John, I said, John, I don't need any help to be sarcastic, you know. I 
don't don't tell me anything that uh, you think might help because I don't you know I don't need that kind of help. And I see he's sitting right there in the front row this morning with that twinkle in his eye, like, well, if you forget, I'm going to jog your memory, you know. So, but anyway, I'm glad to be here this morning and see all these people here and. And I uh, would, li- I guess, you know, the best way for me to get started is, uh, like Sean said last night, to get started, you know. So I would like to uh, to say that, you know, I uh, I was born at an early age and uh, <laughs> ran away from home when I was three years old and went to work in the oil field. And that, you know, that would pretty well sum up my childhood, you know. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I was born and raised on a, on a cattle ranch. My parents were, uh, you know well-respected members of that community. My uh, great-grandfather was a pioneer that settled in that valley, started the town of Big Piney, and the town grew up around the post office and the, and the ranch that they started when they settled in that uh, valley. So I came from uh, pioneer people that had a reputation to maintain and protect, and, uh, you know, they were quite serious about that. And, and uh, when I was younger... I didn't really, uh, you know, fall into that category, and I was a, quite a disappointment to my parents. You know, I uh, have no quarrel at all with alcoholism being a disease and that, uh, you know, that I have it because I can, you know, comparing my uh, childhood and, and, you know, the situation that I grew up in. I had three brothers that grew up in the same household with me. We ate the same food. We were treated the same at home. We had There was no difference in, you know, the way we were raised. We all had, uh, you know, the same, you know, type of parenting. Uh, everything was exactly the same with all of us when we grew up. And yet, out of those uh, three boys, I was the only one that ended up with the disease of alcoholism. And, you know, I, I, can, uh, I can identify with what people have said before me. I think I had alcoholism long before I ever took a drink because I can remember feeling those feelings of, irritability, discontentment, and restlessness when I was five or six years old. And, you know, uh, I never felt like uh, I fit in. I felt like my parents were a failure as parents. When I was five years old, I evaluated my parents. I I critiqued them. I I did it in my mind. I did it a lot of times, not just once. I did it quite a few times. And they always came up lacking. I just didn't think they knew how to be parents. And, you know, I didn't like that. And I I was angry as a child. I I had a lot of anger inside of me. And yet I couldn't express that anger because I was a wimp, you know. And I just, you know, it was just frustrating for me to grow up. And I never uh, never felt like I fit in like people uh, talk about. And I don't think that uh, that those feelings necessarily are what made me an alcoholic because I'm a uh, firm believer in the doctor's opinion and I uh, read the doctor's opinion frequently because I need to be reminded that... Uh, my body, my body was sickened as well as my mind, and if I hadn't have been, no matter how uh, frustrated I was when I grew up, no matter how much anxiety and how much fear and anger and other things I had, if I hadn't had the uh, the physical characteristics that went along with uh, you know with that emotional instability, I probably wouldn't have been an alcoholic. I'd have just been a you know a, maybe a psychotic or a frustrated uh, adult or whatever. I don't know, but I believe if I hadn't had that physical allergy to alcohol that it took for me to be an alcoholic, that no matter how fouled up I was emotionally, I still wouldn't be an alcoholic. And I've got to continue to remember that, that no matter how well I could get psychologically and how well I could adjust to living and how well I could learn to accept it still wouldn't allow me to take a drink 
and be able to learn to drink successfully again because I'm never going to be able to drink successfully and not because of my mental state but because because the doctor in the doctor's opinion condemned me to that physical condition that makes me different than uh, than my brothers see I've got a couple of brothers that are you know my oldest brother's a lot more fouled up than I am and he hardly you know he's a he's a what you call a heavy social drinker you know hell he you know he can drink uh, Drink when he wants to and quit when he wants to. And he, I couldn't, you know, you couldn't make an alcoholic out of him. I don't think there's a, a way to do it. Because he doesn't have that, uh, you know, physical allergy to alcohol that was inherent in me that once I took the first drink, I couldn't uh, stop drinking. So no matter what I tell you today about, you know, my emotions and, uh, and how I feel about life and living and how my recovery has taken place, learning how to, uh, you know, deal with life, it still, you know, wouldn't have changed my alcoholism at all. The emotional things that I've had to work on in sobriety have only deterred me from being, you know, a whole person for a lot longer period of time than people that they talk about in the in the doctor's opinion where they say those people were normal in every respect except the effect that alcohol had on them. And I've seen a lot of those people come into Alcoholics Anonymous. The only problems they ever had were not psychological. They... The only problem that they really had was the effect that alcohol had on them. And when those people recovered from that physical, from the physical symptoms of uh, of the uh, allergy to alcohol, emotionally, you know, they adapted pretty easily and quite well into Alcoholics Anonymous, and their lives got in order way leaps and bounds, uh, you know, sooner or quicker than mine has. So. I've got to continue to remember that and to, you know, to remember to realize that no matter what I do to, uh, you know, change my perception of life so I can adapt better to living situations, that I'm still never going to be able to drink again successfully. I had my first drink when I was 11 years old in a, you might, uh, what I used to call a, a, a cat house down in Kemmer, Wyoming, when I was 11 years old. My uh, brothers took me to that place when I was 11 because they had me with them and they were drinking and they knew if I, they didn't take me, I'd tell on them. So uh, they bought a quart of whiskey and we drove from Kemmer to Big Piney to Kemmer and uh, and I ended up in that what uh, Cecil Corrigal told me that in polite society and being the spiritual speaker on Sunday morning, I should refer to as a... Uh, as a house of untidy rapture. So I <laughs> I came to in this house of untidy rapture when I was 11 years old, and I came off of the farm, like I said, with those cowboys living around the bunkhouse. And, you know, we went to a rural school, a little old town I lived in, of 250 people, and I'd never seen any neon lights or anything before that. You know, we went to town oftentimes in a, you know, in a team in a wagon. So, uh, man, when I woke up in that place, those girls in those little flimsy outfits, I mean, and, uh, you know, the, that place had a parlor in it, and people socialized in that parlor, and I thought that was the most wonderful form of socializing I'd ever seen. They had a jukebox there, and they had those purple lights, you know, before strobe lights were popular, and they burned incense, and those people danced, and they laughed, and they, the girls, now, I know some of you dirty-minded people in here are going to say they took advantage of that poor boy at 11 years old, and that's what ruined him. Well, let me tell you something. They didn't take advantage of me that night, so you can purge yourself of any thoughts, uh, you know, I, I learned about uh, sex later on, you know, and... 
I can remember it well. You know, I was embarrassed and, and I was uh, apprehensive and I was shy and I was alone, you know. So, uh, so you, you don't have to worry about those uh, girls stealing my virtue and uh, they put me on the path, you know, on the road to hell by that. But I remember drinking that night and the feeling I got from it and, uh, you know, that the just uh, you know like i said the things that were going on there and i never knew life existed like that and once i found that out i was never going to be normal again i was never going to be the same that introduced me to a way of life that was a lifestyle that i loved i enjoyed it and i you know i found out about socializing and drinking to me you know started out as a social occupation uh, by the time i was uh, Fourteen years old, I was drinking alone. I was uh, buying whiskey with the money that I got from running the trap line. I was hiding it under the board pile at the ranch, and when my folks were gone, I'd uh, go out and sit on the board pile and drink out of those half-pint bottles that were small enough that I could hide, and I'd drink till I passed out, and I'd come to and uh, drink some more. So I think I started out uh, being an alcoholic. And early on, I had an abnormal capacity for alcohol. And I was the guy that thought I'd never have any problems drinking because during high school I could, uh, you know, I could drink and drive the drunks home. And, you know, I, th- I was listening to Sean last night. God, when he was talking and I thought, mercy, if I'd have drank like that guy, I'd have quit drinking. You know, man, no wonder he quit. Hell, to fire, you know. He had problems, you know. God, I was the, you know, I was the guy. I looked down on those kind of people. When I, when I was in high school, I drank with people like that. And I used to think, God, they're disgusting, you know. And I'd buy a pint of whiskey and take them home, and then I'd drink that pint of whiskey on the way back to the ranch, and I didn't have a lot of problems like that. And I used to just, God, drinking was wonderful. I loved it. I thought, you know, I'm so fortunate. I don't have the kind of problems those people that can't drink have, you know. Those people I don't see in Alcoholics Anonymous today, you know. It's amazing, but I don't see any of them here. So I always think about my mother, you know, bless her heart, uh, she was always worried about my welfare and my benefit, and I remember when, you know, I was a kid, she used to uh, say to me, we had a little neighbor boy, and his name was Tuffy Davis, and I never will forget my mother would say to me, she'd say, son, I wish you wouldn't run around with Tuffy Davis. Tuffy might be a bad influence on you. Well, let me tell you, by the time I was 17 years old, Tuffy Davis wouldn't have anything to do with me, you know. And by the time I was 21, my mother wouldn't either, so... You know, uh, they both wised up. So uh, all I can tell you about that early part of my life and drinking was, like I said, I enjoyed it. It worked. It did for me what I thought I needed it to do, and, you know, it uh, it went well. I was hospitalized for the, the first time for alcoholism when I was 17 years old and dried out in the hospital, and I got so toxic from drinking because I had such an abnormal capacity for alcohol. I got so toxic from it when I was in college in St. George, Utah, over the Christmas season that... Uh, that I had to be uh, detoxed in a hospital. And that was a Mormon community, you know, and I'm sure they hadn't seen too many uh, 17-year-old alcoholics be, you know, hospitalized. And I didn't really know what happened to me. I just knew I got awful sick. I had had a brother three years older than me that got killed in the Korean War. And when I went to college, I had a lot of grief, and I was trying to deal with that, and I couldn't, I just couldn't uh, face living, you know. And by that time, drinking had become such an escape for me that it was so easy for me to just drink away the pain I felt from, you know, dealing with my brother's death that, uh, you know, I'd just been doing that. And over the Christmas holiday, I just over, 
over-medicated, and I got so sick I just, you know, collapsed. And the landlady came home and found me on the floor and put me in the hospital. And I can remember the doctor telling me that I was suffering from alcohol poisoning. And I'm sure he said other things or more than that, and that, you know, something different. But what I heard him say was that I got a hold of some bad whiskey and that if I had to drink a better brand of whiskey, I wouldn't get poisoned from it. Honest to God, I mean, I believed that until the last drink I ever took, and I believed if I drank bourbon whiskey, 100 proof, that I wouldn't get poison from it. I thought that blended stuff was the stuff that had impurities in it, and it probably, if you know, it had poisoned you, make you sick, and you should stay away from it. I wouldn't eat a rotten tomato to make me sick, so I certainly wouldn't drink blended whiskey if that's what it took to make you sick. So... I didn't drink anything but bourbon whiskey for years after that because I believed that anything else might poison me again. So uh, I guess, like I said, I would have qualified for this program when I was 17 years old because that doctor diagnosed my case right there and condemned me to alcoholism. And, you know, once I was condemned to alcoholism, I didn't know it. But I was never going to be able to drink successfully again. It says in this book that once that, you know, once that process had happened to me and I... I was an alcoholic then, and I believe it just as much as I believe it today. I could have saved myself 17 more years of misery because that doctor really told me something. You know, he, he told me, he didn't tell me, but what it says in this book this was if I was an alcoholic when I was 17 years old, the only thing I had to look forward to was I, I had three choices. I was either going to end up in an insane asylum somewhere as a wet brain, I was going to end up in a cemetery because I either died in a car wreck, killed myself, or something like that, or I was going to have to get sober someday. I mean, that was that, that's a sentence to me. I don't know what you guys call it, but that's a sentence, you know. And I didn't know that. So for all practical purposes, I could have saved myself 17 years of misery, a lot of misery, you know, by uh, doing something about my drinking problem then. But I'll guarantee you it wasn't fashionable to be an alcoholic in Wyoming, you know, in 1950, you know, or 1951. That was something that back in those days, if you were an alcoholic, this was, I'm talking about before the advent of, uh, you know, treatment centers and things like that, when my family felt like alcoholism was strictly a moral problem and that if you couldn't control your drinking, that you just had a willpower problem and that you just had... You just have just a lack of willpower, and my family would have a lot rather have have told people that I was, you know, that I had a nervous breakdown and put me in a mental institution than they would have ever admitted that I was an alcoholic. It was just something that was a, you know, it was a family failure. It wasn't just my failure, and they couldn't face that any more than I could. So, you know, alcoholism wasn't fashionable in 1950, and and I certainly didn't want to own up to it, and I didn't know what it was and what they were talking about. But for all practical purposes, if I'd have known about Alcoholics Anonymous then, I certainly could have saved myself 17 more years of misery. It took me 17 years to convince myself that I was an alcoholic because of the denial that was associated with the disease that I had. And I still believe that uh, if alcoholism had another name, it would be denial, and it certainly would have in my case. And, and I denied it until it damn near killed me. So, uh, you know... Uh, I guess I qualify, and, you know, I have it, and, you know, it, that, that's what it took to uh, get me where I'm at today. I'll tell you a little bit about, uh, you know, about living, uh, you know, up to the point that, uh, or existing up to the point where uh, I did. I, I had an opportunity to, uh, to uh, go to work in the oil field when I was 
asked to leave the ranch because my behavior was uncharacteristic to what the Bud family believed it should be, and, and they asked me to leave. And, and when I was 21 or 22 years old, my mother and father disowned me and disinherited me and told me that they wanted me to, uh, you know, go out and try to make it on my own. They thought I ought to, you know, exercise a little backbone. I should learn how to grow up and, and to get out of their life. They were trying, you know, when they were tired of bailing me out, they were t- tired of making excuses for me, and they were tired of all the things that had been going on, and so they put me out on my own. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I was awful angry and frustrated, and so for ten years, I, off and on, working in the oil field, I lived in that little old town, and we'd, my family and I would pass on the street or meet in the grocery store, and we'd never acknowledge one another. So there was a lot of anger and bitterness and hostility as a result of that. And I handled that frustration just like I did the frustration of my brother dying. I didn't know how to handle it, so I drank the pain away. It was easy for me to medicate that pain, and working in the oil field was a perfect place to do it because back then, if you worked in the oil field, you could handle your job. They didn't care how much you drank. People carried whiskey to the job, and they carried it home. Some people drank on the job, and it wasn't looked down upon in the oil field because that was a way of life with those people, and most of them were like me. They were trying to escape from something, and the oil field was a good place to work. We worked seven days a week, and we worked 365 days a year. My weekends off was every six weeks I got a 32-hour long change when I came off a morning tower on Saturday morning, and I didn't have to go back to work until Sunday evening at 4 o'clock, and that was a day off for me, and I worked like that for about 10 or 15 years in the oil field. So when I, uh, you know, was living like that, drinking was such a way of life with me that, you know, to, for me to drink, it wasn't a party. I didn't have to go to the bar, and by that, you know, I'd long since quit uh, needing to go to the bar. I'd started, uh, you know, the morning drink when I was 17 or 18 years old. By the time I was 22 or 23, I was carrying a quart of whiskey with me everywhere I went, and I drank because, you know, drinking was just a way of life with me. I just drank to survive. I drank so I could work. I didn't drink. Drinking didn't keep me didn't get me wild and keep me you know from going to work hell it was what i drank so i could feel comfortable enough to go out and compete with those people that i felt like i didn't fit in with and i could get on the job hell if you'd have taken whiskey away from me i'm sure i'd have been an early teenage suicide i don't think i could have functioned at all so you'll never hear me uh, condemn uh, you know alcohol because what it did for me like i said is it saved my life until i could get to alcoholics anonymous and when I hear people badmouth alcohol, you know, it's kind of like I've heard Clancy say it's, you know, kind of like talking about one of my old girlfriends, you know. <laughs> she might not look like much now, but by God, you should have seen her back when, <laughs> you know. <laughs> she was beautiful, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I really did. I, uh, you know, I, I you know, if, for years when I started out early on, you know, uh, I drank socially. I, I drank so I could be socially acceptable, so I could fit in, and I needed I needed that. I, I needed to drink so I could, like I said, work with, on the job with people that I felt like I was inferior to. And when I drank, man, I wasn't equal to them. I was better than them. And, hell, it just it gave me the courage to do things I'd have never been able to do. And the oil business, when I worked in it, was a dangerous occupation. People got killed on a regular basis. Got crippled up regularly, you know, fingers cut off, toes cut off, arms broken, limbs broken. Got tangled up in the cat head and pulled their arms off, had explosions and fires and burned them up and all kinds of things like that. And I always said, you know, when I was working in the oil field like that, if I'd ever sobered up and found out how dangerous it was and what I was doing, hell, I'd quit the oil field in about five minutes. Hell, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have worked in that damn mess. 
Well, I, you know, I didn't. I, you know, drinking was just a way of life with me, and I continued to do that. My first wife had a hard time accepting uh, my alcoholism, as, you know, everybody else had, and she didn't know how to deal with it, you know. She just didn't have any mechanism for dealing with my alcoholism. And like I said, back in those days, very few people knew much about it. It wasn't something that you talked about on a regular basis. And I can remember when the first article came out kind of publicly, it was kind of like... Here a few years ago when uh, being gay, you know, they started talking about people coming out of the closet and it became socially acceptable for people to admit they were gay and things like that, you know. I can remember when alcoholism was the same way. And back in the uh, 1950s, you know, then you never heard anybody talk about it. You know, the advent of that all came about as a result of that movie, The Lost Weekend. That guy started trying to make alcoholism acceptable as, a, you know, socially as an illness. And uh, that was in the late to middle 40s, but I can remember when the first article I can remember that was ever published about alcoholism being a disease rather than a moral issue came out in the Saturday Evening Post in about 1954. By that time, I was a full-blown alcoholic, and I was having those three- or four-day weekends when, you know, I didn't intend to, but I'd get drunk, and I wouldn't come home again for three or four days, and usually I'd end up, uh, you know, in places I didn't want to be doing things I wish I hadn't have done, but, you know, I'd get drunk and I'd still end up doing them, and that was the only way I had to socialize when I was off work, and, you know, I could work those, uh, you know, those six weeks, and when I had that time off, I'd have to get on a running drunk, and I would, and then I'd always end up at home, you know, dis- you know, disappointed in myself, my family was disappointed in me, and I was bewildered, and I never knew what happened, because I never intended to do those things, but they just, it just went that way, so... My first wife had a hard time with that, and I can remember when I came home one time off one of those three or four-day drunks in 1954, and she handed me an article in the Ladies' Home Journal, you know. She said, I want you to read this article. And I mean, I got that article, and I looked at that, and it started talking about alcoholism, and uh, alcoholism was a disease, and that I, you know, if you drank too much, what the symptoms were, and stuff like that. And, man, my concept of an alcoholic was... Some of those winos that were working for me, by the time I got that far along, I was pushing tools for one of the better drilling contractors in the Rocky Mountains. I was driving a company car. They were paying me a better salary than the, the president of the bank in Big Piney. He wasn't making as much money then as I was making working in the oil field, and I had the responsibility of 15 men on that rig, the trucks to move it with, the payroll, the you know everything that went along with that, and we were drilling a well a week that was costing a hundred thousand dollars a well and I was responsible for that whole thing. And I could I I read that article and I just God, I felt repulsed. I thought, how could my wife betray me like that? God, how could she think I'm an alcoholic? So I introduced myself to her, you know. I told her who I was. I said, I want to tell you something. By God, I, I know some winos, you know. To me, I didn't know what an alcoholic was, but I knew what winos were, and I had two or three of them working for me, Mike Neely and Molly Johnson and people like that that had everything they had in a, in a, you know, in a California suitcase. And, uh, you know, hell, uh, I knew them. I could identify them, but they weren't driving that company car that I was driving, and they didn't have a stack of company credit cards about that thick and making decisions for, you know, the the business that I was looking after, and I told her, boy, I'll tell you one thing. By God, you know, you've got this wrong. I'm not an alcoholic, you know. And so I thought she was crazy, you know. And so I started taking her to a psychiatrist. I wanted her to get some help. <laughs> you know, I thought just in case I was an alcoholic, you know, she'd, you know, she'd need some help to raise the kids if I happened to be alcoholic. And I thought she ought to be sane to raise them. So 
I got an appointment with the best psychiatrist in Salt Lake City, and I started taking my wife to her faithfully, you know, because I wanted her to get some help, you know. And Oh, we had a hell of a time. You know, it uh, ended up, you know, she thought I was an alcoholic, and I thought she was crazy, and it ended up we were both right, you know. So <laughs> we didn't know that for quite a while, but that was the truth. So eventually, why, uh, she got some help and divorced me. And, you know, I've hated psychiatrists ever since then. I thought, boy... I, I tell you that experience really, you know, it was a it was a terrible experience for me because I really thought she was crazy, and she went to this psychiatrist, and I drove her down there faithfully, and we were separated at the time and trying to get her marriage back together. And I don't know if any of you've ever been through that. But that's pretty hard to do when you're living like I was, and so. Anyway, I would drive her faithfully to the psychiatrist, 200 miles to Salt Lake City, and she'd have a little session with him, and I'd drink and. We'd come back and she'd jawbone me all the way back to Rock or to Big Piney and she'd jawbone me all the way down there and I used to think, God, she's not getting much help, you know. So about the fourth or fifth trip they set up a deal, you know, and she kept telling me that he that she kept telling him about my drinking and so about the fourth or fifth trip they set up a deal where, you know, I was supposed to uh uh talk to the psychiatrist and God I hated to do that. I thought I gotta be awful careful because anything I say might be used against me in a court of law, you know. So I've gotta be on my toes when I go to see this psychiatrist and I really, you know, wanna be, I wanna make my case and I wanna look as good as I can, so. I bought a pint of whiskey to drive to Salt Lake City with and a six-pack of beer, you know, because I knew it was going to be a lot of jawboning and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to respond because if I did, I was likely to say something that could be used against me when I went in to see the psychiatrist. So we drove 200 miles, and that 200 miles, she took my inventory, and she did it sufficiently, you know. And, oh, God, I listened to that until, oh, I was like, what was it uh, uh, Keith said yesterday about, God, just don't jawbone me, you know. I'll do anything, you know. I was about that desperate by the time we got to Salt Lake, and, this was back when there were no interstate highways in Salt Lake City. Had State Street. You went right up State Street, and there's a lot of traffic on it, four lane, you know, and cars going in all directions. And I was driving along there, you know, getting ready and thinking about what I was going to say to this psychiatrist and what he might ask me. And I'd rehearsed this in my mind a hundred times, and she was pecking in my ear, and we were driving along. And I had a can of beer open in my lap, you know, and. I had a cigarette in my mouth dangling out of my mouth, and then I always wore white shirts because, with the sleeves rolled up because all of my favorite bartenders dressed that way, and they were people I wanted, you know, I, I thought they looked good, and I wanted to look good like them, and had on a pair of nice pressed Levi's, you know, and I was looking my best to see this psychiatrist. Well, she said something to me, you know, and distracted me, and God, my, you know, my mouth has gotten me in more trouble more times than I can... And before I even knew what I said, I just looked over at her and I said, Would you talk to my ass a while my head aches? <laughs> oh, man, I'm telling you. Well, <laughs> well she reached over and she hit me right on the end of my old big nose. So, well, when she did, the blood just flew. Of course, she knocked the ash off my cigarette, and it fell down on my shirt and caught my shirt on fire. God, my eyes started watering, my nose was bleeding, I was dripping blood on the front of my shirt, the beer can turned over in my lap and ran down my legs, you know, and I looked like I'd wet my britches, see, and God, I'm trying to keep from having a wreck on State Street, and I thought, Jesus Christ, he's a homicidal maniac, he's going to kill us both, you know. I mean, it's dangerous. Hell, you can't, you know, 
man, that's as dangerous as pulling a gun on somebody and pulling the trigger, you know. Hell, you can do that in traffic, you know. God, I kind of got organized, you know, and put the fire out, and, and then I thought, God, i got to go and see that psychiatrist, and I'm looking like this. But I thought, well, that's to my advantage. He'll surely recognize, you know, the fact that, my God, you know, that this, you know, that I've got to have help with that woman because she's, <laughs> hell, she's dangerous, you know. So <laughs> I wasn't quite aware of, you know, what was going to happen, so we went in to see the psychiatrist. Well, of course, she'd been telling him about my terrible drinking problem and what a bad actor I was, and of course, when he looked at me with my britches wet, the cigarette burns on me, my nose bleeding, he thought I'd been out on a big drunk the night before, and she'd just rounded me up and carried me down there to see him. So the first thing he said is, your wife and I think you have a drinking problem. Well, he got my resentment up, so I got him by the necktie, and I choked him down a little bit, and I explained to him, I don't have any problems except I'm married to a homicidal maniac, and they had to call the, you know, the orderlies to get me off of the psychiatrist, and my wife left, and she walked 200 miles home, I don't know, God, oh, it's a, it's a traumatic experience, you know, so... But that's, you know, denial. I think that's probably denial, you know. And, and uh, you know, like I said, uh, uh, you know, I had it. And it's funny now, and I laugh about it, and I think about how tragic it really was when we were going through it, you know, because we neither one of us knew, you know, that, uh, that that was the symptoms of alcoholism, and that was certainly the symptoms of denial, and that the worse your denial was, the worse, you know, case of alcoholism you had. So, uh, you know... I learned that, uh, you know, that way too late. And everything I know about alcoholism today, let me tell you, is a result of hindsight. I, I often hear people talking, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, just sitting around in meetings. And, God, they just make such a good talk. And I listen to that, and I think, you know, it sounds like they knew this all the time. You know, why did they do that? You know, <laughs> well, let me tell you, all the things I'm telling you today, man, anything that I put out here today is a result of things I learned after, you know, I quit. Uh, you know, I got an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I finally could deal with the denial and admit I was an alcoholic, and you know, start putting my life back together. I didn't have a clue about this stuff before. My family didn't either, and I sure enjoyed what Sally said, you know, yesterday about alcoholism being a family illness. God, I'm always disappointed when I see Al-Anon's kind of getting rooted out of Alcoholics Anonymous because it is a family illness and it's a family recovery. And if families, uh, you know, the families that don't recover, you know, or don't stay together always have a lot of wreckage of the past to clean up. You know, I God, I admire, you know, people's, you know, spouses that stayed with them, that hung it out, stuck it out no matter how bad it was, you know, and, boy, I'll guarantee you my hats go off to those people that, uh, you know, came in here with the person that they put up with, the, you know, the, that, the, just the terrible, uh, you know, problems associated with alcohol and alcoholism. Boy, I mean, those people deserve, you know, any credit they get for, you know, sticking the course until they could find a place for recovery. And I don't feel like today that, that you know, with the division between AA and Al-Anon such as, as it is, I don't feel like we're getting an opportunity for that kind of family recovery that we used to have years ago. And that's that's only my opinion, but that that is an opinion that I have about it, and I, I hate to see that because... Some of my family never recovered, you know, and I've had to deal with the result of that for years. So I wouldn't, uh, 
you know, like to tell you that, you know, alcoholism in, in, you know, in our family was uh, so misunderstood. And, you know, after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I had, I'd had 10,000 excuses for drinking. I mean, I, I could make up an excuse for getting drunk before God got the news. I, I was planning two or three excuses ahead, you know, because I knew I was going to need them. And, all of that work I did, that's work. I mean, anybody that thinks it's easy to stay drunk like that and make up all those excuses and reasons and, you know, try to get everybody off your back is, you know, they don't understand, but it's hard work. And well, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I found out, hell, I never needed an excuse to drink. Never had to have an excuse to drink. Hell, I'd had a reason. If I could have just told people, God, I, I'm a sick man. Leave me alone. <laughs> let, me get, let me get on with this. Let me get on with this attack I'm having. Everything would be all right, you know. <laughs> I always felt bad when, you know, I'd drive by the house with a car full of whores and a trunk full of whiskey, and I'd come home and my wife was mad, you know, and she, she thought I was out having a good time, you know. Hell, you know, she couldn't go and tell the neighbors, there goes my husband, he's a sick man, you know. She couldn't, uh, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't tell the kid, he's having an attack today, God, he's sick. Man, let me tell you, I laugh about that now, but let me tell you, when I was doing that, I was as sick as you can be, because when you're doing things that are sick to society standards, you're sick no matter what the perception of it is. I went for, you know, several years in the program before I realized, uh, you know, what that was, but it's covered masterfully in the uh, big book in a place that uh, they talk about a little bit of that. Now, I read this thinking about... I wonder if we ever forget this or if society forgets it when they're thinking about the alcoholic and his actions. And it says, An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness. With it, there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all those whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase this list. Man, I, I mean, if that doesn't describe the sickness that my wife suffered from as a result of my alcoholism, and if that doesn't describe the illness that I had, whether it was understood or misunderstood, I don't know how you could better, uh, you know, state that case. I don't think there's a way to, you know, to better state that case. And I think about, uh, you know, that art, that thing that was on, you know, on uh, CBS News here a couple of three weeks ago about uh, the perception that the public has now that alcoholism is not a, not an illness. It's just a moral issue that. Uh, We've worn out the perception that we're sick people and that the public is tired of hearing about athletes that, you know, do things they shouldn't do and blame it on being sick and all of that stuff. And I thought, boy, you know, it's a shame when we, you know, get that kind of publicity on the CBS News when if they understood, you know, what the frustration and the, the debilitation and the demoralization that I felt, my family felt when I was living like that and doing things like that. Certainly, they would understand that I was a sick man. I wasn't the kind. I wasn't raised to do those kind of things. My family. My father was a banker, and he was a well-respected member of that community. 
and he was a you know he was a well-respected rancher in that community, and they they maintained a good family reputation, and they hadn't raised me to live like I was raised, and I I fell victim to what it says in the big book. After I started drinking, sooner or later, I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell the people that I lived with, and the people that I lived like, and the people that I drank with, and the people that I associated with. <laughs> lived just like I did, and I didn't know that everybody didn't live like that. You know, in the oil field, we moved around a lot, and I could create a problem here and move away from it. I liked that lifestyle. I needed to live like that. Living like I was living, I had to be able to move away from my problems, you know, because I created enough of them when I was drinking that, you know, I needed to get out of town. In the oil field, you could do that. Hell, I'd be working on a well that lasted six months in, you know, Rifle, Colorado, and, you know, six months, or, you know, three months later, I'd be in Bridger, Montana or someplace. And those, I needed to leave town by the time I could leave, and the only comfort I ever had for years when I was drinking was in when I was moving, you know. Man, I loved to move. And then when I was moving, you know, I'd left the place that I'd created a mess that was so bad that I had to get away from it. And I hadn't gotten to the place that I was going to make a mess when I got there, and I knew I was going to. So that three or four days in transit was just like heaven to me. Man, I mean, I could drink with impunity. And that's where I used to, you know, I used to uh, make all my amends when I was traveling. You know, I always hated old people. I hated old money, you know, and I didn't want to be a deadbeat. And drinking like I could, I couldn't pay for that set of tires that I bought on credit in that last town I was living in. So, you know, or maybe I couldn't pay up my my uh, restaurant bill when I, uh, you know, left town and all those things. So in transit, I always uh, made amends to all those people, you know, and I canceled all my debts because I couldn't stand to be in debt, you know. And I'd go through it mentally, you know, and I'd say, well, hey, beat old so-and-so, so hell, I'll just pay him up right now, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, that was just, you know, like I said, it was just like heaven to be to uh, you know to be able to live that way. To make a long story short, in a in a few years, why uh, I drank myself out of about everything that I held near and dear to me, and I ended up down in uh, Kansas or Oklahoma, and quite by accident, I went into the oil business on my own. Uh, I was listening to all the speakers yesterday, and I'm not, I'm not going to uh, you know be any different. And I was listening to them, and I was thinking. And I think you probably relate to this. You know, every one of them, didn't you think each one of them, you know, and was kind of like me, you know, when I talk about all my successes, don't you think that they all had a wonderful future behind them? You know, <laughs> you know every one of those people that I heard talk told about that, you know, there was Keith with an NFL <laughs> career. There was uh, Sean with an acting career. All those people have got wonderful futures behind them. Well, I'm the same way. God, I went to uh, Oklahoma, and uh, me and a guy was drawing unemployment, and we were living in my car, and, and we borrowed a... <laughs> Borrowed a cable tool rig from his brother, and we drilled in a well that came in at 180 barrels a day. And God, you know, if you think all bad things happen to drunks, hell, bad things don't always happen to drunks. Things happen to drunks. And God, we drilled in that well. One day I was a drunken bum living in my car, drawing unemployment, and we were staying drunk all the time. You know, three days later, I was a wealthy, independent oil operator. You know, man, God, I like that, you know. Boy, for about uh, five years, you know, I put together a business that anybody would envy. I had some partners up in Chicago, some Jewish people that uh, liked me, and they had money to spend, and we did some fabulous things. I had opportunities I couldn't even describe. We went to Georgia and put a deal together for a half a million dollars to uh, drill up a good prospect, and I drilled in some good wells, and I drilled a lot of dry holes, and I drank in Chicago with 
people like Gig Young when I was there promoting money. And I did, you know, things that lived like, you know, I wanted to live. And for about three or four years, you know, whiskey worked for me and everything worked for me. And I, you know, continued. But, you know, by that time, I, like I said, my first wife had divorced me and my alcoholism was so far out of control. I'd uh, married again and you know, the, I'll, I'll tell you to make a short trip out of this that, uh, you know, I went from, from being able to be like that and when that deal fell through in Georgia that we put together for a half a million dollars when I was getting towards the end of my drinking and into desperation and I needed that money so bad, when that deal fell apart because I ran out of whiskey down there and went into DTs with my partner in the motel room, you know, and he, he was a teetotaler. He liked me and everything else and he knew I knew the oil business and I'd made him a lot of money, but... He got frightened of me when I went into DTs in a motel room when I was going into withdrawals and I ran out of whiskey and I didn't know what had happened to me. So, you know, my world started falling apart then and I went back to Coffeyville, Kansas where I was living and I laid down on the couch and for the next two years I just drank up the assets I'd put together. I just started hawking things. I got to where I couldn't go to work. My normal routine was I'd get up in the morning, I'd read the Tulsa World, I'd think about the deal I was going to put together, and I was going to call these partners of mine in Chicago and promote some money, and we were going to go drill a well. And in my mind, I was going to get her all together, you know. And I'd get up in the morning with my normal routine, and I'd drink. My morning drink was a half pint, and it had been ever since I was 21, 22 years old. And I'd get up in the morning and drink that half pint, you know, to get my motor started and get my senses going so I could think about those deals I wanted to put together, and I'd get the Tulsa World out and lay down on the couch, and by the time I got to reading the Tulsa World, I was so far gone that I couldn't get up on, get on the telephone and call them, you know, so... For the next two or two and a half years, you know, my life just went to hell, and it went to hell, in a, you know, in a hurry, and I got uh, what, you know, it talks about in the big book, I understand that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I got so uh, bad at the last part of my drinking that uh, that the only thing, I, I, I only had uh, three stages, and that was, I was either... Uh, I was either so drunk that I couldn't function, you know, I just, I couldn't get up and do anything for myself. I crawled around on the floor most days. I couldn't get up and dress myself. And it wasn't because I was too drunk to do it. It was because I was too weak to do it. My lungs started filling up with fluid and, you know, I got to, I was dying of what people used to call whiskey pneumonia, you know, and that used to be a viable disease. People died of whiskey pneumonia. They just medicated themselves to the point where their heart slowed down to the point where their body functions didn't work and their lungs filled up with fluid and they drowned on the inside. And that's just exactly where I was. In the last six weeks I drank, you know, I just got to the point where I either drank until I was so toxic I couldn't hold it down anymore. And when I couldn't hold it down anymore, I mean, I absolutely couldn't take any more in my body. I'd just go into enforced sobriety, and in about 48 hours from that enforced sobriety, I'd go into seizures from the fever I got from being so sick that I couldn't, uh, you know, I just couldn't do anything for myself. When I'd go into seizures, my wife would would dress me. She'd roll me around on the floor until she got my trousers up, and she'd take me down to bootleggers, and I'd buy another pint of whiskey, you know, and I'd go back home and I'd start drinking again. I'd medicate myself until I'd do that same thing again. Uh, I think the last, uh, you know, in that period of time, about two and a half months, I had six or seven seizures like that, you know. I didn't know what was, you know, I didn't know what to do. I I knew I couldn't quit drinking, and I, I sure knew I couldn't continue to live and drink like I was living, you know. I mean, God, I would have welcomed dying. Dying would have been easy for me. I would have just, you know, if I could have just died, 
You know, I would have done that in a, in a minute. And I couldn't do it. Uh, I can remember the day that, uh, you know, I've got to say this. I know it says in the big book that a frothy emotional appeal would seldom suffice. The message that uh, holds these alcoholic people's interest has to have depth and weight. So I don't want to get too frothy this morning. And when I talk about that, it's hard for me to, uh, you know, not get tears in my eyes when I, you know, realize what I was and where I came from, you know, and... uh, like I said, the day that uh, that I finally uh, came to my senses was an afternoon. When that day I was on my feet and I walked to the bathroom, you know, and I hadn't been walking for several days, but I walked in there that afternoon. I can remember coming out of the bathroom that afternoon. It was about 2 o'clock, and I remember passing the mirror, and I saw myself in the mirror like I really was, you know. I mean, I was... Like Keith explained yesterday, I weighed about 240 pounds. I had jowls that hung down to here. My normal weight was 155 pounds, and that's that's what I weighed. That was just my normal working weight, and I'd weighed that all my life. That last three months, I was so toxic from drinking that it just poisoned me. Like I just swelled up like a poisoned dog. My eyes swelled shut. Those jowls were hanging down to here. I had a lump out from under my ribs about the size of a grapefruit. My ankles were swelled up as big as my thighs and I could push a hole in my skin and it would stay there for a day or a day and a half. It just wouldn't, you know, my skin just wouldn't pop back out. I just was that uh, that bloated up. And I can remember seeing myself in the mirror that day just like I was and I can remember that moment of clarity that they talk about and I said to myself, I said, my God, what are you trying to do to yourself? You know, what in the world are you trying to do? I hadn't shaved in several days. I had that, you know, beard that I, you know, and I just, I couldn't believe that I was, you know, in the shape I was in. I came out of the bathroom that day and told my wife, I said, if you'd uh, chain me up to the bed, maybe I could quit drinking, maybe I could get off of this stuff. And she said, I'd do that, but she said, as soon as you started having seizures again, I'd get you dressed and take you right back down to that bootlegger. Because she said, I just can't watch you die in there in seizures. And she was as bewildered by that as I was. She didn't know what to do for me. She said, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but I couldn't do that. But she said, I have an old newspaper here that has a number in it about some people that do something about alcoholism. And she says, I don't know what it is. So she got the newspaper. It was about a two- or three-year-old newspaper with an article on the back of it that she had cut out of the paper from when her son got married, and, and it was on the back of their wedding pictures. It was a little simple ad, and it said, If you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to stop drinking, that's our business. Call this number. Now, that number was about three years old, and I picked up the telephone that day and called those people. And they came to see me. Well, let me tell you, it's been a hell of a ride from there, I'll guarantee you, you know. Uh, I didn't have any idea what I was in for, and those people came and, you know, spent a couple hours with me that afternoon, and, uh, you know, they they helped turn my life around and put it back together. Uh, the guy that came to see me became my first sponsor, and God, he was a hell of a guy. He just was 
you know, he was my mother and dad and sister and brother, and I didn't have I didn't have a person I could go to when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't I hadn't had a friend stop by my house. I hadn't had anybody call me in in a year. I mean, we didn't take the local paper. I didn't know anybody in that town I could call, and this guy just he became you know everything to me, and he he just started taking me to meetings. You know, he took me to my first meeting drunk, and then those people came and did. For me, what they used to do in those days when there wasn't any treatment centers, there was a hospital wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. I couldn't see a doctor. No way. He calls members of the group, and they came up there, and they 12-stepped me like they used to do in the old days. They sat up with me. They fed me orange juice and honey, put me in a bathtub of hot water, watched me go through those withdrawals and, the you know, the muscle spasms and, the you know, all of that stuff. And, and that guy, uh, you know, he nourished me back to health and started me on the road to recovery. Uh about nine months later, he I I had an awful time in AA because I couldn't believe in God. I just I just had no no concept of God at all. I had certainly, like Keith said, after my brother got killed, divorced him. If I'd had a concept of him, and I didn't want anything to do with him, and I'd lived such a life that I hadn't there hadn't even been any part of God in my life, and ever you know, and I didn't even know where to start that relationship, and I was afraid of it. I was I was fearful of that when I heard it in Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I'd hear. If you're going to stay sober, you'll have to develop a relationship with a higher power because I, I didn't even know how to attempt that or how to start. Well, I'll tell you how God works in this program to help us do what we can't do for ourselves. And I don't know as these are the kind... I mean, I hate to use this as an example, but it's the only example that I have of how you know it, I was capable of learning how to uh, find out about God and learn how to trust Him. This fellow that was my first sponsor was a power line electrician, and he climbed those power poles and worked on those hot wires, and he was 62 years old and tough man. I mean, he still could run up one of those 80-foot or 60-foot uh, wooden poles, you know, with spikes and work up there all day hanging off the belt, you know. And he'd been sober five years. His wife was wino, and, you know, they were both in the program, and, God, they were super people. One day he went to work, and he got electrocuted. He took a 12,000 volt charge and it went in his, in through this arm and it crossed his body and missed his heart and came out his other leg. And so it was just like putting him in a microwave. It fried this arm from the shoulder down and it fried, you know, part of this hand and the, and the knee and the leg on one foot and, and the heel on the other one. And they put him in a ambulance and rushed him down to Tulsa to the burn center and, and I went down with him because his wife went into shock and she couldn't even go. And, so as soon as we got there, uh, you know, the doctor told me, he said, well, we've got to operate on him immediately, and we're going to have to take off his arm at the shoulder, and we're going to take off his leg, at his left leg at the, at the knee, and we're going to take off his right heel and his kneecap on the right side, and we think we can save him. And I said, God, you know, Grady, was a, he was alive, or, you know, he was alert, and he knew what was going on. He was in pain, but he knew everything that was happening, you know. And I just couldn't imagine telling that guy that was that vital, and he made his living running up those power poles, to imagine him sitting in a wheelchair the rest of his life, you know, not able to do what I'd heard him talk about he wanted to do in retirement was go down to Arkansas and fish and hunt and be vital and all of those things, you know, and it just devastated me. I'd been sober about nine or ten months in, and I don't really forget, I asked that doctor, I said, did you tell him what you intended to do to him? And he said, yeah. And he said, I told him, and I said, well, how did how did Grady take that news? And he said, well, I don't understand that guy. But he said, boy, he sure took it a lot better than I would have if somebody had told me that. And I said, well, could I go in and see him before you take him into the operation? And he said, 
Yeah, he said, you just have a few minutes, but you can go in there. They're getting him ready right now. So I said, okay, I'd like to. And I just felt compelled almost to go in there and tell him something, you know, that would make him feel better, that would, uh, you know, give him a little bit of hope and as much hope as he'd given me. I remember walking in that room and the nurses were working on that guy, you know, and I was just fumbling for something to say that, you know, would maybe give him some support. And I never will forget him looking up at me from that uh, hospital bed with those people working on him. I'd see him today, you know. He had a little smile on his face, and he said to me, he said, oh, he said, that's all right, partner. He said, you don't have to say anything. He said, I've already taken that third step. <laughs> I just, I thought, God Almighty, you know. Here I can't, uh, you know, I can't find a, a belief in God. I can't find out how to believe in Him. Here's a guy that believes in Him so much he's willing to go through that. And he says it's all right, you know. Well, that's how I got my introduction into uh, into the spiritual part of this program and Alcoholics Anonymous. Those people that learn how to give, you know, things that they don't have in, in the strangest ways that... You know, I don't know how that stuff happens, but it happens. And I don't know as God uses people as bad examples to give us good examples, but God uses examples, whatever they are. And those examples are put there for us to see. And I saw that example, and I went back to that group. and I started working on a, on a relationship with a higher power, built on the trust that he had. I didn't have another way to start or another starting point, so I'd start the only way I could start. That was the way I could do it. I'd like to tell you some of the good things that have happened. After I'd been in the program about a year and a half, my uh, parents came to see me, and my dad and I, like I said, hadn't spoken to one another in several years, and they couldn't believe that I wasn't writing any more hot checks run through that bank up there that they had to cover. They couldn't believe that they hadn't... Uh, you know, had to send money to bail me out of jail. They couldn't believe it. Uh, I wasn't uh, charging things and telling people that, uh, you know, send a bill up there to Wyoming that those people pay those bills. And, uh, you know, because if it doesn't, they'll be so embarrassed that, uh, you know, they can't stand to face the people in the bank because uh, their son's writing hot checks and they're willing to do anything to protect him from that, even though they hate him and they won't have anything to do with him. You know, and after a year and a half, my folks came to see me. And my dad uh, attended a meeting and... and uh, he heard what somebody said in that meeting, you know, and that is he hated it. He didn't want to admit he was an alcoholic. He knew I was an alcoholic. He knew what an alcoholic was. It was me. But he couldn't be one, you know, because he was still a respected rancher. He was still a banker in that community, and you know, but he, he enjoyed those meetings, and he went. He stayed about uh, about a month, and, and he went back to Big Piney, and he tried every way in the world to drink successfully. And, you know, my dad had been a periodic alcoholic when I was a kid growing up, and I'd watched him, you know, and to me, sobriety was what I watched him go through when he wasn't drinking for six months or a year at a time because he hated drinking so bad, you know, that he'd go on and forced to run, and then he'd get so mean that he couldn't get along with himself, and he got, like it says in the big book, with untreated alcoholism. He'd get so... He gets so so uh, bad that sooner or later he'd start abusing himself, and when he'd start abusing himself so bad, then he'd go back and get drunk so he could, uh, you know live with himself until he could do that again. By the time I 
got into this program, my dad had become more or less a chronic alcoholic, and he was, you know, more or less a daily drinker. His routine had become where he'd go to bed at night and set a bottle by the bed. If he woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, he'd take a drink and pass out again and get up the next morning and go out there and work on that ranch all day and, you know, and drink. And so he went home to a Big Piney to try to learn how to live you know, without drinking, and he stepped over to the nearest bar room and he tried some control drinking, and he tried it more than once, and he tried it in several combinations, and he tried every way in the world to keep from being like me, and the harder he tried to prove he wasn't an alcoholic, the more he proved he was, you know, and so the next fall he came back to uh, Coffeyville, Kansas, and started going to meetings with me, and he was just short of 70 years old at the time. Uh he uh, tried to slip in the back door, and I wouldn't let him. I made him admit he was an alcoholic. He wanted to learn the secret by going to meetings, you know, and then he could go back home and just read the book, and, you know, he wouldn't have to do what we do to stay sober. And I'd tell him, you can't go to those meetings because those are closed meetings. They're just for us alcoholics. We're special people. I said, you can come with those others, you know. You can come with them, you know. But you can't come to these meetings. Well, boy, I'd see, I'd come home some evenings from work, you know, he'd be all dressed up, and I'd see he planned on going with me, you know. I'd say, no, you can't go tonight. And he got frustrated, you know, so. One night we went to a meeting up in Chinook, Kansas, where it was a, I thought it was an open meeting, but it was a closed meeting, and we got there late, and they'd already opened the meeting or started the meeting, and we went in and sat down. They were having a meeting around the table, and it was a closed meeting, so they didn't know. And when they got to him, you know, they were just calling on people. And when they got to him, they called on him. And he'd heard a guy talk in that meeting that uh, made it socially acceptable for him to become an alcoholic. And miraculously, he became an alcoholic because he said, My name's Dan Budden, I'm an alcoholic. And from that time on, he started in this program. And he didn't have a meeting in that town he lived in. There was no group there. It was a little town of about 300 people, 350 people by then. And... So the first year, he stayed sober reading the big book. He'd put that bottle aside from the bed, and when he'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and want to drink so bad he couldn't stand it, he'd pick up the big book and read part of a chapter out of it. And then he'd call me once in a while on the telephone. We'd have a meeting over the telephone, and that went on for the first year of his sobriety. And after a year, a guy moved to town that had a year of sobriety down in Las Vegas, and they started having meetings together. Well, let me tell you, uh, in 1990, my father passed away of terminal cancer. He had, uh, I came home from Washington, D.C. to uh, celebrate his uh, 20th AA birthday with him, just uh, about two months short of 90 years old, and he had 20 years of continuous sobriety. And that group that he started there, there was 15 members there that were in that town, local people that night that were at that meeting, that... Uh, were people that, you know, he had, uh, you know, been responsible for allowing, a, you know, a place to be there to meet because of his perseverance to go down there and, uh, you know, and, and keep that place open when there's, you know, when nobody showed up. And, God, I, you know, I thought that was wonderful, and I really, uh, you know, I really appreciated what he had done. And like I said, at his birthday that night, you know, I just was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. It's hard for me to talk about the kind of gratitude you know, I mean, how do you describe in words gratitude for something that like that? See, as, a, as my dad's sponsor, he and I developed a relationship that I couldn't have had with anybody else in the world. I mean, we, we became the best of friends. He could share things with me that he couldn't tell anybody else in the family. He couldn't say that to them. He couldn't say to anybody else in the community things he could say to me because, you know, he, he was a well-respected person and he was a banker. So he'd come and talk to me about things, and we had developed such a relationship. and. 
And he was, you know, he was a hero to me. And God, after, you know, after he passed away, I, you know, I dealt with that in my mind. And I used to think about that a little bit, you know. Well, good sense prevailed in about, uh, you know, a month or two. And I got to realize, you know, you know, my dad didn't do that because he was a good person. You know, I'd like to believe that he did. I'd like to believe that. I'd like to think, God, my dad was just such a wonderful person that he was devoted to all those poor alcoholics. Big binding, he'd start that meeting so they'd have a place to recover. You know, my dad didn't do that because he was a good person. He did that because he was a desperate alcoholic. You know, that's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous work. It doesn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, with getting good or getting bad. I wasn't a bad person that needed to get good. I was just a sick person that needed to get well. Only way I could do it was in a fellowship like this where I was accepted the way I was instead of the way those people would rather have me be when I came here, you know. And my dad recovered the same way. And like I said, I, I put that in perspective that, you know, as much as I'd like to think he was a wonderful person, and he was. And a hero to me, you know. He he was, you know, he started that group for the same reason that I attend Alcoholics Anonymous, and, you know, out of desperate need to continue this way of life so he could stay sober and, uh, you know, and learn how to live life on life's terms. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, I haven't uh, talked about all the things that I had in my heart this morning. Like I said, I wish I could tell you that all my relationships have been patched up and I have a wonderful relationship with everybody. My mother never recovered in the program, and my mother died just a oh, bitter, miserable living. The weller my dad and I got, the more we became involved in AA and the better we got, the sicker my mother got and the more she resented us being in the program. And my mother was a wise and wonderful person. She was a writer. She wrote articles for national magazines. She wrote public poems that were published. She did handwork. She did ceramics. She dealt in antiques. She had a mind that was out of this world, but she could not grasp the simple concept that we had to grasp in desperation, you know. And my mother uh, was never guilty of anything. She was a wonderful person, and she died of untreated alcoholism, a miserable death in a nursing home. The only benefit I ever got out of that was the fact that I learned how to forgive my mother for being what she was, and I loved her when she died. Uh, I had a couple of brothers that uh, couldn't go see her, you know, when, when she was going through that. Their excuse was, we can't stand to see her, you know, the way she is. Uh, Audrey suggested one time, uh, you know, why don't you try looking on the inside? Maybe you'd see something different. You know, that's what we learned to do here. We learned to look on the inside. And well, hell, if we looked at everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous on the outside, we'd probably reject half of you misfits. You know, guys like me would fit, but <laughs> some of you people, I can look around right now and tell I'd have sorted you right at the door, you know. But, uh, you know, we looked on the inside and, you know... Uh, you know, we've let everybody in here, so I learned. I learned that, and like I said, I wish it had been different. But the last four or five years that my mother lived, I could go see her in that nursing home, and I, I cared uh, deeply for her. And she never understood me. She never did. She died not understanding what I was doing or why I was trying to do it. And like I said, my mother was only. She was never guilty of anything, except loving two alcoholics. You know, that's that's all she was ever guilty of. Uh, I'll tell you, the last part of this story is something that uh, has always amazed me or happened to me, you know. It's hard for me to talk about, uh, you know, all of the spiritual things that have happened and how you get from, you know, where you were to where you are and, you know, if you're successful today or if you're not successful today. Or I don't know how you measure that anymore. I don't know what yardstick I use to measure that by anymore. 
considering what the speakers I've heard talk about here today and talking about the wonderful futures they've had behind them by society standards and judging what they said about their past and what they're looking for in the future, they're, you know, they'd be considered as failures. But my God, you heard every one of those speakers get up here and attest to the, you know, to the fact that they wouldn't trade all the worldly things they had for the feeling that they have inside today and the peace of mind they've acquired as a result of that to go with it. And that no matter what's been taken away from them, what's been given back to them in a, in a way of living has so far replaced that that they haven't missed anything that they've, that's been gone. Well, I had a kind of a similar experience when I uh, went to Washington, D.C. I didn't choose to go there. I wouldn't have wanted to live there under any circumstances. I hated that place, the climate that I was involved in, and I wouldn't have even gone except my friend Howard here shamed me into it. And I had a resentment against him for a long time. God. But anyway, I ended up back in Washington, D.C., and it was a culture shock to me. Man, I mean, I had a hard time adjusting to the meetings, and I, you know, I had a hard time adjusting to that lifestyle. And they didn't talk oil field in the interior department, you know. They talked, uh, everything they talked about was in, you know, uh, what you call politically correct terminology, you know. And I still had some of those little oil field ways, you know, that we'd be sitting in a briefing around one of those mahogany tables with a bunch of people in suits and stuffed shirts that had never been out in the oil fields, you know, and they'd start talking about some ridiculous policy decision they wanted to make, and I'd say, well, no shit. (laughs) Man, I noticed that they'd start sliding down about one seat away from me, you know. Man, I mean, they didn't, you know. So I got to think, I, that God, I thought, well, that's kind of funny. I don't smell bad, I don't think, you know. And I didn't realize that's anything wrong because no shit's just a word you hear in the oil field. You know, I mean, everybody says that. That's, a, you know, that's a, you know, that's the difference between a, a fairy tale and a true oil field story, you know. And fairy tale starts out once upon a time. A, a true oil field story starts out by saying, now this ain't no shit. <laughs> See? So I didn't think I was... <laughs> I didn't think I was hurting those people's feelings any, you know. I didn't intend to, but they got kind of suspicious of me, you know, after a while. And I looked in the politically correct dictionary, and there's no definition of no shit in there, you know. So I'd recommend they probably get one. I think those people would become a lot less stuffed shirts, and they'd make a lot better decisions if somebody had defined that to them. But anyway, they won't, so... But what happened to me, I'll tell you a little bit about and get the hell down from here so you can all get home and I'll quit boring you with this uh, (coughs) dissertation, was the day that the Gulf War started, or the day after the Gulf War started, they called a meeting down at the Department of Interior and said they were going to have a briefing down there for the Secretary of Interior or some of his, or the Undersecretary or whoever showed up, the Director of the Bureau of Land Management and some congressional aides because they wanted to get some, you know, some, uh, oh, an idea about what to do about the domestic oil problem in case the war got so bad that it cut off the oil supply. So they, called, you know, kind of called an emergency meeting. And I got to work that morning, and I said, well, we're all going down to the Department of Interior at this briefing, and, you know, we want you to go. And so I said, okay, I'll go. And they gave me a little assignment, something to look up, you know, that if they needed to ask me a question, I'd have, a, you know, an answer for them. And I did what I needed to do. And at 1 o'clock, we went down to the Department of Interior. And we go in this, you know, room and the mahogany table, and all the people come in and sit down. And, you know, there was about 20 of them in there. And the, the, the undersecretary was there and the director of the Bureau of Land Management, several congressional aides from western states and, uh, you know, our 
head man and all the other people that were, you know, around there sitting around this table. There was about 20 or 21 people sitting in there, you know, and they went around doing this briefing, you know, and they'd call on, you know, they called on different ones, you know, and they called on guy and asked him what his opinion was, and they, you know, went around and they got to me and they asked me something, and I said whatever I had to say, and they went on, you know, and it just, you know, kept going around the table. And after it passed me, you know, and I was sitting there, and I was just... I was overwhelmed, and I thought, my God, I, I, I'd think sometimes when I was in Washington, D.C., I'd think that's just a bad dream. I'm going to wake up one of these mornings, you know, and I'll be in bed, and I'll, I'll wake Audrey up, and I'll tell her, God, you know, I just had this nightmare. I dreamed we were living in Washington, D.C., you know. God, I just, you know, and I'm so glad I woke up and found out it wasn't true, you know, and I just, I would think that all the time, you know, and, and it didn't happen, you know. But I was sitting there daydreaming in this board meeting, and they were going around, and my mind seized on a thought, and I thought, you know, God Almighty, hadn't you know? Hadn't my life taken a turn around? I thought, you know, here I'm sitting in this place. It's as unlikely for me to be in as it would be likely for me to be on the moon tomorrow or in five minutes. I mean, I it is not likely for a guy like me, with a third grade education, a 30 IQ, and a nine year old mentality, to be sitting in the boardroom in the Department of Interior, given input into, into, you know, decisions that might affect the United States. And I thought, my God, this couldn't be happening. And then the thought seized in my mind, in this devious mind of mine, and I thought to myself, I thought, what in the world would these people think if they could have seen me 24 years ago now when I was crawling around on the floor talking to that dog and I couldn't put my own clothes on? I mean, I... When, I mean, what would they, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, you know, what would they have thought if they'd have known what I was like, you know, and it just appalled me. I thought, my God, there's no way to get from where I was in that state of hopelessness, you know, to sitting here today doing what I'm doing, but by the grace of God, I mean, absolutely. And I didn't have one thing in common with those people. I had not one thing in common with them. I couldn't socialize with them. I didn't have anything in common with them in common with them on an intellectual level. I didn't have anything in common with them on an emotional level or one damn thing and yet there I sat. And I thought it's you know, it's impossible. And then the next thought that I got was I attended meetings down at the Salvation Army in downtown Washington, D.C., because me and another guy that I knew there started at that meeting because we needed a real meeting with some real alcoholics, and the best place to find them was in the Salvation Army in downtown Washington, D.C., because most of the people in the regular meetings were seeing psychiatrists, and, uh, you know, they were working Alcoholics Anonymous in conjunction, in conjunction with intense psychotherapy and spook religion X and, you know, all this other stuff. And I needed Alcoholics Anonymous. So me and this guy were going down there at the Salvation Army. And I'd made friends with six or seven of those guys that had been living in dumpsters and, you know, living on the streets there in Washington, D.C. And I, I thought to myself, you know, what would these people think if they knew that in order for me to get the strength to come up here and sit with these people and put up with them when I have no earthly reason for being here, no social or any other reason to, to socialize, what would they think if they knew I get the strength to do that by talking to a bunch of winos down at the Salvation Army? Man, I mean, they'd get a butterfly net and they would have netted me, hauled me out of that place if they'd have known that. They said, hell, get this guy out of here. Hell, you know, you can't have some dummy like that giving decisions about what, you know, what the, you know. Uh, uh, you know. 
So, you know, what, what, what can I tell you? I can't tell you. You know, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Except a few things my sponsor told me. Uh, you know, he told me that, uh, you know, the only way I could get from where I was when I first came in this program to where I am today was by living this way of life. My sponsor told me something. I hated him for it for two or three years. And I liked what Sean says. Well, about three years, and I hated that sponsor of mine. He was the most obnoxious bastard I'd ever seen. And I only acquired him in order to help him. I mean, I, I, they told me if I didn't get somebody to help, that I'd get drunk. And I went to a meeting one night, honest to God, and I looked around that room, and I, I was desperate to find somebody to start working with. And I picked out the sickest guy in that damn room. And I said, that's the one. I'm going to start working with him. I didn't know he'd been sober 12 years, you know. So, hell, I started calling him my sponsor. And I kept, I've been working with that guy ever since, you know. And, hell, you know, I've done a lot for him. Hell, he's improved a hell of a lot since. But, but he told me something. He said, Carl, the AA program is a way of life. And he said, you get this way of life by living it. You can't get it by learning it. And I hated that. I wanted to learn it because I'm a quick study and I can learn things quick. And if I could have only learned this program and, you know, applied it through a learned knowledge, you know, man, I would have been, hey, you talk about the head of my class. I never excelled in school, but I could have excelled in this because I could have done a con, you know, con job on myself through my mind. But he told me, you know, if you like the people in this program and they've got something you want, and, you know, I admired people that had been sober 30 years. I admired that quiet confidence that they had about them and how they dealt with living problems that nobody else could deal with and all of those things. And he told me, he said, Carl, the only way you can get 30 years of sobriety is by living 30 years in this program, dealing with living problems one day at a time. He said, the AA program's a way of life, and you get a way of life by living it. You can't get it by learning it. And he said, you can't get it by staying away from Alcoholics Anonymous. The only way you can live this way of life is immerse yourself into Alcoholics Anonymous and make it part of your life. Well, you know, I believe that guy today, and I've tried to make it a part of my life. It's, you know, it's necessary for my recovery, because I believe if I don't do that, that I'm surely going to die of uh, the disease of alcoholism. You know, if uh, any of the newcomers here today are really concerned about, you know, well, how am I going to live? You know, the guy that got the book today that had 10 days of sobriety, he said, how am I going to live? I can't get this way of life, you know. They gave a, a pretty simple uh, uh, explanation of it. Sometimes it's overlooked in the big book where uh, they talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what uh, you know? What might have to happen to me to immerse myself in Alcoholics Anonymous if I wanted to continue into recovery? And said my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he if he did not work, he would if he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Well, I'll guarantee you that's, uh, you know, that statement right there has been my salvation in Alcoholics Anonymous because that's probably the only thing I've done right. You know, I've continued to come to meetings where I could be exposed to people like you so I'd have an opportunity to, to be around people, you know, that I might benefit, that could benefit from something that I might give. That's what I'm doing here today. If somebody had told me or asked me if I'd choose to come to Cody, Wyoming and talk at a meeting like this, 
I'd have told you absolutely not. I would not do it under any circumstances. And the only reason I'm here today is because if I, I honest to God, believe that if I didn't do that and I didn't do what he said in that part of that book, that I would be the guy that would die of alcoholism. I'm just glad to be here today and be sober, and I thank all of you for coming.